America. Drowning in information. Starving for wisdom. The Kate Daly Show starts now. You know, the real miracle of Christmas is that any religious significance remains. Despite the gaudy tinsel wrapping, the meaning of the Christ Mass remains somehow intact. And though our eager eyes now search the skies for man-made stars, we yet remember best the one which once upon a time stood still over a stable. This is the miracle of Christmas. Not that so many profane the day with self-indulgence, but that so many still trudge through the snow to an early service or a midnight mass. If after generations of effort we still tend to disparage the day, what do you suppose would happen if we instead renewed it? There are no more lengths to which we can go to dilute its significance. Perhaps we should revert to reverence. For if this magic day, despite the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, has somehow survived and thrived, my goodness, with proper care and tending, the love it represents might heal all of our hurts. The faith we could not starve to death, properly fed just once each year, might overwhelm the world. Anyway, we've tried everything else. The revitalization of Christmas will be as tedious as its erosion was gradual, but there's no better time than right now because it's later than it's ever been. Where do we begin? With prayerful thankfulness, I think. Merry Christmas, we traditionally say to one another. Merry Christmas. Yet that's not the larger meaning of the day. It's his birthday, not ours. Welcome back to the Kate Daly Show. This show is pre-recorded. This is the um, uh, the John Henry Falk Christmas story uh, that I play every year, and always puts a tear in my eye, no matter no matter what. Here you go. The day after Christmas, a number of years ago, I was driving down a country road in Texas, and it's a bitter cold, cold morning. And walking ahead of me on the gravel road was a little barefooted boy with nondescript ragged overalls and a makeshift sleeve of a sweater tied around his little ears. I stopped and picked him up. Looked like he was about 12 years old and his little feet were blue with the cold. He's carrying an orange. And he got in and had the brightest blue eyes one ever saw and he turned a bright smile on my face and says, I'm going down the road about two miles from my cousin's. I want to show him my orange old Sandy Claus brought me. But I wasn't going to mention Christmas to him because I figured he came from a family that kind of don't have Christmas. But he brought it up himself. He said, did old Sandy Claus come to see you, mister? And I said, yes, we had a real nice Christmas at our house, and I hope you had the same. He paused for a moment, looked at me. And then with all the sincerity in the world said, Mister, we had the wonderfulest Christmas in the United States down to our place. Lordy, it was the first one we ever had had there. See, we never do have them out there much. Don't notice when Christmas time comes. We'd heard about it, but never did have one because, uh, well, you know, it's just... Papa says old Sandy Claus, Papa Hoorahs a lot, said old Sandy Claus was scared to bring his reindeer down into our section of the county because folks down there are so hard up that they liable to catch one of his reindeer and butcher him for meat. 
but just just several days before Christmas, a lady come out from town, and she told all the families through there, our family too, that there was old Sandy Claus was coming town to leave some things for us, and if Papa'd go in town, he could get some Christmas time for all of us. And Papa hooked up the mule wagon. He went in town, but he told us children, said, now don't y'all get all worked up and excited because there might not be nothing to this yarn that lady told. And But shuck, she hadn't got out of sight up the lane there. We was done watching for him to come back. We couldn't get our minds on nothing else, you know. And Mama, she'd come to her once in a while and say, now y'all quit that looking up the lane because Papa told you there might not be nothing. And, but long about the middle of the afternoon, well, we heard the team of jangling harness coming, and we ran out in the front yard, and Ernie, my little brother, called out and said, Yonder come Papa, and here come them mules just in a big trot, you know, and Papa standing up right in the bed of that wagon holding two big old chickens, all feathers picked off, and he was just yelling, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, and the team stopped right in front of the gate, and all us children just went swarming out there like a like a flock of chee-chees, you know, and just crawling over that wagon and looking in. And, mister, I wish you could have seen what was in that wagon. It's bags of stripy candy and apples and oranges and sacks of flour and some real coffee, you know, and just just all tensely and pretty and we couldn't say nothing just kind of held her breath and looked at it you know and papa standing there just waving them two chickens and yelling merry christmas to you merry christmas to you and a laughing that big old grin on his face and mama she come a hurrying out with the baby in her arms you know and when she looked in that wagon she just stopped and papa he dropped them two chickens and wrenched and caught the baby out of her arms you know and held him up and said merry christmas to you sandy claus and and baby little old alvy lee he just he just laughed like he knowed it was christmas too you know and mama she started telling us the name all that them nuts it wasn't just peanuts there was she had names for all of them she, mama knows a heap of things like that she'd seen that stuff before you know and we's all of us just a chattering and a going on at the same time us youngins are looking in there and all of a sudden we heard papa call out merry christmas to you sam jackson and we stopped and looked and here comes sam jackson leading that old cripple leg mule of his up the lane and Papa said, Sam Jackson, did you get in town and get some Christmas this year? Sam Jackson, you know, he share crops over there across the creek from our place. And he shook his head and said, well, no, sir, Mr. Will, I didn't go in town. I heard about that, but I didn't know it was for colored folks, too. I thought it was just for you white families. All of a sudden, none of us children were saying nothing. Papa, he he looked down at Mama, and Mama looked up at him, and they didn't say nothing like they don't a heap of time, but they know what the others are thinking. They're like that, you know. And all of a sudden, Papa, he broke out in a big grin again. He said, Dad, blame it, Sam Jackson. It's sure a good thing you come by here. Lord, have mercy. I like to forgot 
old Santa Claus would have me in court if he'd heard about this. The last thing he asked me if I lived out here near you. Said he hadn't seen you around and said he wanted me to bring part of this out here to you and your family. Your old woman and your children. Well, sir, Sam Jackson, he broke out in a big grin and Papa said, I'll tell you what to do. You get your wife and children and you come down here tomorrow morning. It's going to be Christmas time all day long. Come early and stay late. Sam Jackson said, you reckon? And Mama called out to him and said, yes, and you tell your wife to be sure and bring some pots and pans because we're going to have a heap of cooking to do, and I ain't sure I've got enough to take care of all of it. Well, sir, old Sam Jackson, he started off uh, leading that mule up the lane in a full trot, you know, and he was heading home to get the word to his folks and his children, you know. And next morning, it just, you remember how it was yesterday morning, just rosy red and looked like Christmas time. It's cold, but you didn't notice the cold, you know, and the sun just come up, just all rosy red. And us young'uns were all out of bed before daylight, seemed like, just running in the kitchen and smelling and looking. And it was all there, sure enough. And here comes Sam Jackson and his his team and his wife and his five young'uns in there. And it's all looking over the edge, and we run out and yell, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. And Papa said, Christmas gift to you, Sam Jackson. Y'all come on in. And they come in, and Mama and Sister Jackson, they got in the kitchen, and they started uh, cooking things up. And us youngins started playing Christmas time. And it's a lot of fun, you know. We just play Christmas gift with one another and run around and around the house and just roll in the dirt, you know. And then we started playing, go up to the kitchen door and smell. And we'd run up and smell inside that kitchen door where Mom and Sister Jackson was cooking at. And then we'd just die laughing and roll in the dirt, you know, and, and go chasing around and playing Christmas gift. And we played Christmas time till we just wore ourselves out. And Papa and Sam Jackson, they put a table up and put some sheets over it, some boards up over some sawhorses. And everybody had a place, even the baby. And Mom and Sister Jackson said, well, now it's ready to Come on in, we're going to have Christmas dinner. And I sit right next to Willie Jackson, you know, and he'd just roll his eyes at me, and I'd roll my eyes. We'd just die laughing, you know, and there was an apple and an orange and some stripy candy at everybody's place, and that was just dessert. See, that wasn't a real Christmas dinner. Mom and them had done cooked that up, and they just had it spread up and down the table. And so Papa and Sam Jackson, they'd been sitting on the front porch, and they come in. Papa, he sit at one end of the table, and Sam Jackson sit at the other, and it was just a beautiful table like you never had seen. And I didn't know nothing could ever look like that and smell that good, you know. And Sam Jackson, you know, he's real black, and he had on that white clean shirt of his and in them overhauls. Everything had been washed and was real clean. Papa, he said, Brother Jackson, I believe you're a deacon in the church. I ain't much of a church man myself, but I believe you're a deacon. Maybe you you'd be willing to give grace. Well, Sam Jackson, he stood up there, and his hands was real big, and he kind of held on to the side of the table, you know. But he didn't bow his head like a heap of folks do when they're saying blessing. He just looked up and smiled, and he said, Lord, I hope you having as nice a Christmas up there with your angels as we have it down here, because <laughs> it's sure is Christmas time down here. And I just wanted to say, Merry Christmas to you, Lord. Like I say, mister, I believe that was the wonderfulest Christmas in the United States of America. Isn't that great? 
Ah, John Henry Falk. Um, that Christmas story, probably one of the best. Um, just absolutely love that. And, you know, that's the America I live in. That's the America I live in and, and have lived in. And so um, when I hear the governor uh, come out and say these things, I'm always perplexed because um, when he thinks we need equality clauses and compacts and I, you know, look around, you know, people are, are, are genuinely pretty kind to each other. And the few, very few cases of that that happen or maybe, maybe centralized to maybe a few particular areas um, in the United States, um, if there is that kind of judgment going on and that kind of perceived racism going on, you know, um, that cannot paint the, the, the picture for all of America. The show is previously recorded. Are open now. Call 888-673-1450. This is the Kate Daly Show. song uh i'll take your calls 888-673-1450 888-673-1450 uh sometimes it's good i think uh to think about these things as we're going into christmas um this is the only time of year that we can do this and um and so i always felt like it was important on this show too to kind of dial into perspective and and also to um What's important, <laughs> you know, sometimes it can, you know, I was reading the headlines and it was um, uh, just nonsense and then nonsense and then nonsense. And, and uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren and, and Bernie Sanders arguing over uh, won't won't attend the, the debate, arguing over labor dispute. I'm going. Yeah. And it was just it struck me as funny because I thought labor dispute. Neither one of them have ever really worked. They've only, they've only been fed off government. And I, I just thought, interesting, you know? So I like to kind of turn to some of the things that we kind of maybe take for granted a little bit that we don't ever think about. But if you'd like to call in on, on uh, what I just spoke about, you're more than welcome to. 888-673-1450. Uh, it's totally fine. Um, so let me uh, let me give you this. This was uh, this was interesting because uh, it was a couple of years ago, and I remember uh, there was a gentleman, and I I was reading an article where the gentleman said he had served in the Salvation Army, and I, I it struck me for some reason, and I I remember thinking served that's a, that's an interesting way to put it served in the in the Salvation Army because we think of it as a charity, we don't necessarily think of it as a uh, as a uh, uh, the the Salvation Army. And so I've thought that that was kind of intriguing. And uh, I've always looked at those bell ringers, you know, the volunteers with the kettles and never really looked as it as an army to serve in. 
like we think of as an as a as an armed forces, you know. And so most people take the Salvation Army, I think, at face value, like I did for so many years. They're busy, they're shopping, and they just see the kettle every year, right? Don't really think about it. But William Booth, he was actually born in Nottingham at the turn of the 19th century, and only about 50 years after our country had officially become a country. And he was born in England um, to Samuel and Mary. His his dad was an entrepreneur and a builder at the time, but uh, he died when William was only 13 years old. So the family finances were in ruin, and he needed to support his mother and his sisters somehow and carried that burden. And so he started down the path of a, of a religious career. He felt like the Church of England was too formal and unfriendly, and he began looking into being a Methodist. And then he was really inspired by James Kaye, the, the Kaye, the fiery American preacher, prone to theatrics who traveled around England at the time. So William felt like God was calling him to do a great work. And uh, he was ill quite a lot, but began preaching religion on the back streets of Nottingham. And so at the time, um, Westland, um, uh, you know, Methodists prevailed and also uh, called a lot of disputes between the sects of the Methodist religion. So to understand William, you have to understand John Wesley, the founder of that. Um, and he believed in a threefold grace, uh, permanent grace, uh, prevenient grace as, as God's active presence in our lives. This presence is not dependent on human actions or human response. It's a gift, right? And so, um, so it goes on and, uh, and, and, and he really was really about, uh, salvation. Salvation is not a static one-time event in our lives. It is the ongoing experience of, you know, transforming us into whom God intends us to be. And so this was, he was really inspired by John Wesley and, uh, and by that sort of uh, sanctification, if you will. So this is what he preached and, and he was very instinctive about it instead of intellectual about it. So he avoided the regular, you know, theological debate, and he was a pretty precocious teenager at that. But he meets his wife, Catherine, whom he married in 1855 and had joined the temperance movement 10 years before meeting Booth. And they both had a devotion to religion. Um, William showed passion, but not a lot of direction. And Catherine was more of the direction. She was kind of this great source of guidance to him. Um, but warned him about the evils of ambition. She was quite worried about that. And they had a very equal relationship, partnership in marriage. And, and he was, uh, this was, you know, unlikely in those days, I'd say. Um, but still like more likely, I think, than people want to give it credit for. Um, but she was considered a heretic. She believed women should preach in church. And William supported that view. And she had eight children with William. So he had such a different style of preaching. It was flamboyant, more hellfire, damnation, you know, with hymns to popular tunes and contemporary songs. And he thought it would appeal to the ignorant masses that did not go to church. He thought he could get them into church. So he was heavily criticized for this. And the older uh, middle-aged were quite offended uh, by his new profound, uh, you know, way of doing things. But he didn't even care. He wanted to reach those that could not have attended uh, church, and, and he wanted to make sure that those people felt welcome. welcome. And he wanted those that produced and drank alcohol, um, uh, you know, um, to be banned from coming. He, uh, he left the church that, that he preached at. Catherine soon joined him. And, uh, and the audiences acted half horrified at <laughs> what they were doing in this new, different kind of way. So the Booths learned a valuable lesson as they were roaming the country for the next couple of years. 
And one was that the poor were likely to visit or, or likely to listen to their own kind. And who could resist, uh, you know, uh, these addresses by uh, horse racers and, and so forth, because he let, you know, kind of anybody, uh, you know, join him. And so uh, Booth recruited all these unlikely helpers. And and he named it the Hallelujah Band. And Catherine's eyes in particular were being further sort of opened, um, you know, caused by, you know, to the social wreckage that was going on from all the drinking and the prostitution and everything like that. So a group of missionaries impressed by William's preaching in all of these sort of seedy streets in London asked him to lead a series of meetings for them in a large tent at a place called Mile End. And William was so struck by the amount of work that had to be done by the local poor that the Booths agreed to stay. And despite never attend, intending to kind of, you know, found their own church, they just, they set up the, the uh, what was it called, the East London Christian Mission. And that was going to be renamed as the Christian Mission um, to reflect more of a nationwide potential because he still kind of had his eyes maybe on even growing it at that point. So William preached in, uh, in unusual venues from a stable to a pub while Catherine raised funds among the city's well-to-do. She appealed to them a little bit more than William and William would, uh, go where no one else would go, right? The uneducated, uh, the non-Christian, you know, wherever he could get a crowd that would most likely not be going into a church. And so he reasoned that no one could concentrate on that message with with, on an empty stomach. So soup kitchens and what was called food for the million shops were created, uh, to help provide the poor with sustenance. And then these mission meetings, you know, pretty much disrupted all the time by jeering and stone throwing and fireworks and all the rest. William and his people just merely sort of turned the other cheek and just kept going. And in fact, persecution became tantamount to the sort of badge of honor. It, it took a special kind of person to deal with such this, you know, kind of hostility. So how did it get its famous name, the Salvation Army? Well, the name change was a result of a family joke by the Booth's eldest son named Bramwell. All of the Booth siblings had been immersed in religion and strict discipline from birth, and Bramwell was now this sort of industrious second-in-command to William at the new church. He was helping his dad. And on hearing them uh, called a volunteer army, he thought he thought it a rather understated description for the workers. And so William replaced the offending word with salvation. So it became the a Christian mission, became the Salvation Army in 1878. And from that moment, the movement really took off. The concept of an army albeit peaceful, captured the imagination of all the sections of this Victorian society, um, publicizing a, a Whitby campaign, screaming, we are rushing into war. It is a field of blood already. And a public ham uh, a public ham sandwich tea will be provided in the Congress Hall. And so... Um, uh, you know, but but war it was. Ranks were adopted in the army, and William and he mo- really modeled it after the army with William as general, and the uniforms were designed so that members could immediately recognize each other. So for women, the unflattering hallelujah bonnet <laughs> that served as the double function of the of separating wares from worldly fashions and protecting them from uh, from missiles. And he found that the brass bands were great for attracting crowds. And so as, as Army Corps uh, progressed through the streets, they also helped drown out the hecklers. 
1884, there were 910 um, core church centers and over 2,000 officers in Britain in this Salvation Army. And it's non-use of the sacraments and it's proscription of alcohol that the Salvation Army um, differed from the Church of England, which kept sort of this huge distance between the two, but it was becoming part of British life. And so at first, uh, William Booth resisted the idea that the army could spread internationally, but then it sort of appealed to him a little bit more later on. And uh, then in October 1890, Army mother Catherine Booth died after uh, she got cancer. So her funeral was in London, attended by 36,000 people. Um, a mark of not only respect uh, was held, but also the strength of the army. So William and his whole organization obviously missed Catherine because she was sort of the guiding presence there. But it certainly uh, contains his ideas on practical Christianity, you know, if you will, just sort of uh, kind of inventing this this new way of doing things. And then um, they were really trying to shine a light on, on poverty. And he believed uh, that that hampered people's path to salvation. And so uh, William described the ways in which the army could reduce those hurdles, and it included the establishment of city colonies, farm colonies, and overseas colonies as places of kind of like a rehab, rehabilitation, shelters for the destitute, lost persons bureau, um, a prison reform like rehabilitating for ex-prisoners. So the army already ran a home uh, for discharged felons at King's Cross, but many Victorians kind of held the view that the poor only had themselves to blame for their plight and sin, and reactions were sort of mixed about this at the time, too. So in the last years of his life, he turned again to preach. He met the world's wealthy and powerful, right? Hobnobbed with everybody. And then in uh, from 1904, despite really failing health, he embarked on a ser- series of uh, annual motor tours um, of the UK, covering thousands of miles and speaking at hundreds of meetings. And uh, yeah, and he uh, he died in, uh, or he was promoted uh, to glory, if you, want to, if you want to put it, that died in, in 1912, and 150,000 mourners uh, came. 150,000 um, um, were lining the streets too, as it was, as he was driven through the streets. Um, so the Salvation Army became the fifth largest charity in the UK. And as of 2005, its outreach is 109 countries, 175 languages, and the Salvation Army's membership consists of 3,500 officers, 60,000 employees, 113,000 soldiers, 430,000 or more adherents, and more than uh, 3.5 million volunteers. There you have it. I know, kind of crazy, huh? Uh, it became, it just became huge, you know. So, in you know, his life was was interesting to me. Where he came from, what his goals were, what they were trying to do. Um, but when you look at those kettles, I hope you remembered this as part of the story because that party is not really told. And and it it took a long. It, I never, I had never realized or really ever had thought about army. Um, but I thought that that was kind of interesting in the way that it developed as the Salvation Army. Uh, be right back on the Kate Daly Show, and I'll take your calls, too. You're welcome to call in. You can call in about anything. It's fine. 888-673-1450. Be right back. Lines are open now. Call 888-673-1450. This is the Kate Daly Show.
Hope you're having a good one. Um, Hope this weekend is fun for you. I'm sure you probably have holiday plans, I would imagine. (laughs) So uh, welcome back. Of course, phone lines are open if you'd like to call in uh, about anything I've talked about, actually. Um, History always intrigues me, and uh, and I think there's always such a great story behind all the different songs that we sing each Christmas. Um, You know, I've done shows about uh, the history of Christmas tree, and I mean, you name it. I've probably done it on this show through the years. I did a lot for The Blaze. Uh, when I was on the blaze to um, just just uh, from edict of Torah to uh, you name it. I mean, we probably run the gamut. Um, but, you know, there always there's always things that stick with me too. always things that uh, that I'd like to share and with you. And of course, 888-673-1450. Um, if you'd like to call up, that's totally fine. And I know calls were coming in, but usually kind of close to a break. And so that's usually why I don't uh, take them right off the bat. But um, we're open, so you can you can call in. Um, or sh- I should say I am. Anyway, um, I wanted to play uh, this for you. I thought that this was, uh, it was a touching story because I, I think that it really kind of, it, it touches upon something kind of fascinating and at the same time sad but what a what a what a great thing. And so, you know what? All right, I'll take a call really quick and then I'll play it for you. Hi caller, welcome to the show. Go right ahead. Hello. Hi I there. have the greatest holiday song that no one ever played. Really? Everybody loves the Monster Mash. Uh-huh. That same year in 1959, uh Bobby Boris Pickett did a holiday song. It's called Monster's Holiday. <laughs> it I believe it also got to number one. Really? But I've never heard anyone ever play it, and it's totally hilarious. Okay, well, I'll check it out. Thank Halloween you. Halloween Christmas action. Uh, you uh, will love interesting. it. Interesting. Okay, thank you thanks. very much for always playing such great songs all the time, Aww, all year long. Thank you. Thank you. You're great. Yeah, you I really it. hope you all have a terrific Christmas. Thank you. You appreciate it. Thank you. That was really sweet. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Um, I really do. All right, let me let me play this for you. This is a it's kind of a sad story, but it was uh, it was touching. It was really touching. Here you go. This is uh, Jason Schmidt. So, my parents split up when I was two. My uh, mom went to California by herself. I stayed in Eugene, Oregon, with my dad. My mom wanted to be an artist. My dad wanted to be a parent, but he was a young guy. He was 22 when I was born, and he was a junkie and a dealer, and stuff was just always going wrong. When I was three, he got busted in our living room right in front of me for dealing coke. And then when I was four, our housemate accidentally burned our house down. And it was just always one thing or another like that. But Dad had this trick that he could do. You know, the bad thing would happen and we'd be sitting next to the road with all of our worldly possessions, and he'd say, sit tight, kid. I'll be right back. And then he would leave and come back. And when he came back, he would have a phone number or a used car or some friend who owed us a favor or 10 years on probation instead of 20 years in jail. It was like this magic trick he could do, and it was amazing. He was like a superhero to me. There was nothing my dad couldn't do, but it didn't mean that life was easy. You know, the economy in Oregon back then was really, really bad, and he couldn't work straight jobs because he had a felony conviction, and he couldn't deal because he was on probation. But then when I was seven, 
they cut his probation short because of some kind of budget problem, and they were letting nonviolent offenders go early. And Dad had an idea where we were going to go. Uh, we had heard that there were jobs uh, and good schools and uh, cheap housing, if you can imagine such a thing, in Seattle. It was the 70s. So uh, we put all our stuff in storage, and we got in Dad's crappy yellow Vega. And he had just enough cash in his pocket for food, gas, and we were hoping first, last, and deposit on uh, a place here in Seattle. So the the only thing was we were going to do one thing before we left. We were going to go camping for a little while because uh, just outside Eugene, there's this little piece of heaven. It's the Fall Creek watershed, and it's just it's gorgeous. And we'd had a lot of good times out there with our friends, and we wanted to say goodbye to it before we left. So... We got in Dad's car with a little bit of cash and some blankets, and our stuff was in storage. We went to Fall Creek, and we got a great camping spot right next to the river, got out, had a campfire, roasted some marshmallows, and told some stories, and got in the car and went to sleep. And in the middle of that night, our first night camping, my dad wakes up because he's hot, and he can't figure out why he's hot. That's his first question when he goes, why am I hot? And he can't figure out why, and then he realizes it's me. I'm generating a tremendous amount of heat. I was hot to the touch. He actually like couldn't leave his hand on my forehead. So he wakes me up, and I'm kind of lucid, and I, I, I seem functioning, and, and it's dark, it's the middle of the night, he doesn't know what to do, but I seemed okay, so we went back to sleep. And in the morning, every little nick and cut on my body, you know, like little kids get, was red and swollen. And there was one on my arm... And he, he just touched it, and it just burst open, and blood and pus started running down my arm. And he said later that the thing that f- was most terrifying about that moment was that I didn't react to it. I was seven, and I was just looking at it like it was happening to somebody else. So he got in the front of the car, and we drove to town uh, to our family practitioner, Dr. Barry Hill, and... Dad and I sat in the exam room, and he gave me Tylenol to lower my fever and antibiotics, and he said that, uh, he said that what I had was a flesh-eating staph infection over most of my body. And he prescribed us this special soap that was supposed to take care of the staph infection. And he said that my dad would have to monitor my temperature. If it got above 104, he should take me to the emergency room immediately, and that I should get plenty of fluids and a lot of sleep. And it, it wasn't said, but it was strongly implied that what we shouldn't do was go live in the woods <laughs> and, and bathe in the stream with all the living things that have you know, their poop and their own bacteria. So we went out in the lobby, and uh, Dad went to the pharmacy, and he used our house money to get the soap and, uh, and a handful of change, and he came back. And uh, I sat there next to a, a, phone, a phone booth in the, in the lobby, and he, he made calls. He called everybody we knew. And nobody could take us because they had kids, and they couldn't risk them getting infected. Or they had roommates, or they were dealing, and they didn't want a kid in the house. And so I was sitting there, and I was watching my dad making phone calls. And 
He wasn't yelling and he wasn't begging. But he was getting scared. And I'd never really seen that before in all of his previous magic tricks. And I started, I had this moment, this seven-year-old epiphany where I was thinking about all the other times that stuff like this had happened. And I was thinking about it sort of from his perspective. And I started to realize that to him, each of these near misses were just points on a trajectory leading to this moment where we had been sliding downhill for a couple of years. That's what it would have looked like to him. I just hadn't noticed because I was a kid. So he runs out of change, and we go back out and get in the car. And he sits there with his hands on the steering wheel, and I'm still hoping I'm wrong. So I look at him, and I go, where are we going, Dad? And he goes, just be quiet for a minute. And then he starts the car, and we go back out to the woods. And it wasn't the end of things like it had looked like. The soap worked, and he checked my temperature, and it went down, uh, and we spent a while out in the woods. And it was kind of fun. It was almost what we'd intended to do, except that we weren't camping anymore. We were homeless. And we stayed there longer than we needed to. And at some point, I did that thing again where I tried to imagine it from his perspective. And I started to understand that he was avoiding the reality that we didn't have any money for a house when we got to Seattle. But eventually, we just had to go. So we got to Seattle in Dad's crappy Yellow Vega with $20 and no place to stay. And... That worked out eventually. That worked out. We had other houses, and we had other near misses. But the way that I saw my dad had really changed forever. He wasn't a superhero or a magician to me anymore. He was just a man who did his best. Thank you. That was Jason uh, Schmidt and uh, that story. And, you know, sometimes I think parents need to be need to be told, you know, do your best, do your best. But but don't uh, uh, don't be so hard on yourself. (laughs) Sometimes we can get really hard on ourselves uh, for not being as perfect as we'd like to be. But I loved that story just because it it really does kind of ring uh, that that message bell that says, you know what? It's fine. You know what I mean? You, you do what you can do and do what you can do for your kids. Uh, this is one more Christmas 1949. I love this. Here we go. A light drizzle was falling as my sister Jill and I ran out of the Methodist church, eager to get home and play with the presents that Santa had left for us and our baby sister, Sharon. Across the street from the church was a Pan American gas station where the Greyhound bus stopped. It was closed for Christmas, but I noticed a family standing outside the locked door huddled under the narrow overhang in an attempt to keep dry. I wondered briefly why they were there, but then forgot about them as I raced to keep up with Jill. Once we got home, there was barely time to enjoy our presents. We had to go off to our grandparents' house for our annual Christmas dinner. As we drove down the highway through town, I noticed that the family was still there, standing outside the closed gas station. My father was driving very slowly down the highway. 
The closer we got to the turnoff from my grandparents' house, the slower the car went. Suddenly, my father U-turned in the middle of the road and said, I can't stand it. What? asked my mother. It's those people back there at the Pan Am standing in the rain. They've got children. It's Christmas. I can't stand it. When my father pulled into the service station, I saw that there were five of them, the parents and three children, two girls and a small boy. My father rolled down his window. Merry Christmas, he said. Howdy, the man replied. He was very tall and had to stoop slightly to peer into the car. Jill, Sharon, and I stared at the children, and they stared back at us. You waiting on the bus, my father asked. The man said that they were. They were going to Birmingham, where he had a brother and prospects of a job. Well, that bus isn't going to come along for several hours, and you're getting wet standing there. Windborne's just a couple miles up the road. They've got a shed with a cover there and some benches, my father said. Why don't you all get in the car, and I'll run you up there. The man thought for a moment, and then he beckoned to his family. They climbed into the car. They had no luggage, only the clothes they were wearing. Once they were settled in, my father looked back over his shoulder and asked the children if Santa had found them yet. Three glum faces mutely gave him the answer. Well, I didn't think so, my father said, winking at my mother, because when I saw Santa this morning, he told me he was having trouble finding y'all, and he asked me if he could leave your toys at my house. We'll just go get them before I take you to the bus stop. All at once, the three children's faces lit up, and they began to bounce around in the back seat, laughing and chattering. When we got out of the car at our house, the three children ran through the front door and straight to the toys that were spread out under our Christmas tree. One of the girls spied Jill's doll and immediately hugged it to her breast. I remember that the little boy grabbed Sharon's ball, and the other girl picked up something of mine. All this happened a long time ago, but the memory of it remains clear. This was the Christmas when my sisters and I learned the joy of making others happy. My mother noticed that the middle child was wearing a short-sleeved dress, so she gave the girl Jill's only sweater to wear. My father invited them to join us at our grandparents for Christmas dinner, but the parents refused. Even when we all tried to talk them into coming, they were firm in their decision. Back in the car on the way to Winborn, my father asked the man if he had money for bus fare. His brother had sent tickets, the man said. My father reached into his pocket and pulled out two dollars, which was all he had left until his next payday. He pressed the money into the man's hand. The man tried to give it back, but my father insisted. It'll be late when you get to Birmingham, and these children will be hungry before then. Take it. I've been broke before, and I know what it's like when you can't feed your family. We left them there at the bus stop in Winborn. As we drove away, I watched out the window as long as I could, looking back at the little girl hugging her new doll. Christmas 1949. Isn't that great? Be right back on the Kate Daly Show.